Hello. I hope that you're doing well. I've put together this best of 2020 episode as a way to kind of highlight some of the conversations and hopefully you'll be able to see some associations with some of the themes that we've talked about um, within your own life. And that can help you reflect and, and take some meaningful action moving into 2021. It seems to be a an energy of renewal. You know, it's been an interesting year and, you know, I think there's been some opportunities that have been, that we've been lucky enough to be presented with opportunities for a rebirth or a facilitation and an acceleration of change moving into the new year. So the themes covered along these conversations seem to link up quite nicely with one another. Trust is one of them. It's definitely something that I've been wrestling with in my own life and, um, you know, thinking about and reflecting upon. The illusion of separation, the illusion of the separate self and coming together as a human species to work towards a more beautiful planet and a more beautiful world. The idea of vibrations and vibes and how we connect to one another and how to deepen our connection to the people around us, ourselves and nature as a whole. We'll also discuss sacred spiritual practices, which is a common topic on the show, but more more intention has been kind of driven in the direction of how do we integrate these spiritual practices into our daily lives so that they become part of our our wholeness you know they they contribute to our wholeness the symphony of the of the soul and how our uniqueness moving into our uniqueness and finding you know the best way to uniquely express ourselves based on a connection of our mind our heart and our gut working in unison and the idea of remembering coming back to this state of knowing uh, so these are the themes that we've covered that i've kind of um that's that have just kind of come up there have been areas i've been exploring on the show and i really hope that you click with these these conversations and, and something is sparked within you uh, to help you on your journey if you do resonate with any particular conversation they'll go for about these are just 10 minute snippets uh, so feel free to kind of take it out in chunks you don't have to hit it all up at once uh, but if you do resonate with any particular guest then i'll leave some links to the full episode in the description section whether you're watching this on youtube or listening to it on spotify or apple podcasts or anywhere else uh, and if you are enjoying the show whether it's your first time or whether you're kind of um, you know you've been with me for this journey on this journey for a while uh, then do consider subscribing and you know feel free to reach out and connect with me I love uh, meeting new people and connecting with you would be an honor and a blessing so yeah let's get into these conversations like I said they're around 10 minutes each some are a little bit more some are a little bit less and I really hope that, um, you know, some, some of this kind of interesting stuff comes through and allows you to deepen your experience, um, you know, in this existence that we're all kind of um, together within. 
before we get into it, I think it's probably worth doing a breath because that's what I've been doing as a ritual before every episode. So I'd like to invite you to take a moment with me to take a pause. And all it looks like is a deep and as slow as possibly, uh, as slow as you could possibly take an inhale. Um, do that with me and, and use your diaphragm and allow that to go to sink deep into your belly. And then at the peak of that inhale, take a moment just to pause and then release, you know, whatever's whatever tension you've been holding in your body, in your mind, in your heart, release that out. And then we'll um, dip into these, these chats and, and we'll see where it goes. So let's do that now. So close your eyes when it feels right and inhale. Hope you enjoy this special little remix of the show. To me, if you practice with enough consistency, long enough, the, the, the effect of the practice starts to get, uh, I'll say it like this, it gets louder, you know, it gets more robust. There's more texture there it's more tangible. So the kind for me, the, the, the way to enter into that space now is simple because there's a lot of resonance that's been built up through energy cultivation and through time spent in relationship to, well, my mind really. So it's like the difference between my mind uh, being in a loop of a thread of a sort of neurotic or compulsive thought process that's based on a feeling. So fear or grief or joy or whatever it is, and that sort of creating thoughts. And if I go in to, let's say, listen and access a deeper sense of connection and all I encounter is hearing the voice inside my head, that texture of that voice is so, it's so clear now after 23 years of practice, the texture of that voice versus the other, like you're saying space or spaciousness. So if I close my eyes, and start to listen, the sound of that voice that's running is so small compared to the felt sense of space. So what I do is I turn my attention towards the space. And I think what you'll hear, and maybe this is, maybe we can just play with this in the meditation that we do as mm. the outro is when you work awareness it, with enough repetition, so let's say I'm aware of my breath or like we did at the beginning. I mean, 
I dropped into your wave right away. You know, it's like morning for you. It's evening for me. I'm coming out of four meetings, moving like this. And you're like, let's take a breath. And it was like, whoa, my whole system dropped into your resonance. And I was like, oh, thank God, man. Thank you. You know, and that was your awareness on your breath. But there's also something I get in the transmission that you're giving off, which is, I think, probably, I mean, I would guess it comes from the depth of your listening, that there's a spaciousness to, to that when you guided that inhale, there was a spaciousness there that you're creating. And everybody, from my perspective, has their capacity to generate that kind of space for themselves. It's just a process of spending more and more incremental time feeling into and listening into that space until the volume of silence starts to turn up, you know, and the sound of the mind starts to diminish. And once that starts to flip, you know, it starts to get real, um, it, it gets more tangible, you know, but I think the, the, for so many people, they just hear the loudness of the voice inside their head. And they're like, Oh, this is, you know, <laughs> meditation is not for me, or I don't have access to my inner wisdom, or I don't have access to my intuition. And it's like, mm, you know, it's there. Can you talk to me a little bit about, this is going to sound like a big question. I know it, but I, I want to hear what yoga is to you. And, and, and obviously, this is just your definition, but I think who better to ask? So, what is yoga to you, Janet Stone? Yoga is truly this recognition of our, for me, of my individuation, right? My individual body and self born into this form that is impermanent, that is an attempt to remember my infinite nature, my interconnected nature, to nature, to you, to all things, to all times. And that may sound lofty, but it actually is very practical. It is a very, it has very practical applications, meaning to keep coming back into body, not just the story here I tell about my life, right? Not just the mask that I wear. It's like, trying to melt that and that's a daily journey right to just peel back like mm, pretty smile okay now okay a wink and then a, you know just what am i performing mm. like it's the it's the it's the melting of the performance of a life it's the dropping into the actual presence of moment to moment body and then that remembrance and that interconnectedness with all living things my dear friend harish who is a tantric shaivist and a sanskrit scholar he talks a lot about the the ocean right and he talks that okay so we're all this ocean we're all from this ocean we're all in the ocean and each one of us comes up into this body for a moment just like any windy peak in an ocean and there's all the peaks in the ocean but what we do is that we look across to the other peak and we're like Ugh. Look at that foam, that's, that's nothing. Oh, look at that, look at that wave, it's so green. I, I'm not into that, well, though, that ocean peak. And then we all 
descend back in to the full ocean. You know, it's just, we have these moments of being embodied and like, how can we remember and how can I remember my interconnectedness with all things? But that also starts with my interconnectedness with my whole self as well. So hmm. it kind of, it's a partial answer. You and I could probably go on and on for a very long time, but yeah, we could talk, we could do a whole episode just on yoga. Easy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that would be chapter one. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. It really is. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot to take in and, and it is quite a, it's quite kind of profound ideas we're talking about, I guess. Yeah. And, and I'll simply just, you know, add in there that a lot of this selling of yoga, right, has come from boxing it into like a self-improvement program. So let me, if you just give me a quick second to address that. Go for it. And, yeah. that, and I'm happy with any self, I mean, it's beautiful, but that's actually almost the antithesis of what yoga is. You're not actually self-improving. You're trying to actually just be with self as self is. And that, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have profound shifts and maybe feel like you're a more um, trustworthy, honest, clear human but if you're on the trajectory of like i gotta fix this broken thing as opposed to i've got to reveal myself to myself again and again and again and melt into the isness of my being uh it's just it, it, so really also to say like it's not just the asana and your planks and it's not just how many chaturangas or even contortion which is all beautiful and can be uh, uh, almost like a mantra, right? You give attention and tension, you give power and focus. So that part's beautiful. If you're holding it, not as either a competitive or show or, um, or a sense of like, I got to fix myself. I got to make myself improvement projects. So I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Is that, is that like a common pattern that you see in the mindsets within your studio or just in, in, in I think in globally. Yeah. I, I, tra yeah. I travel honestly across the, this planet and I'm so grateful. I, in all of the places and, you know, so many of the questions just are about, Oh, you know, can, can we do a handstand, you know, and all that is beautiful again, attentive mm. and focused, but I really just want to remind you know, us all that yoga is actually a deep, rich, ancient art and science that actually does mind, body, spirit, and it's not a self-improvement program. It's not just a, a momentary fitness program either. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that makes sense. So there seems to be this kind of, um, the, the idea of acceptance, the idea of effort and work and, and practice and showing up continually, um, and there also seems to be an element of uh, trust. Uh, I was looking at the moon the other night and as uh, it's winter here at the moment and it was a full moon and there was like a, uh, I could see it through the branches of kind of a tree that had lost all its leaves and the, the dark clouds were kind of passing over until they completely kind of... Um, took away all the light that was reflecting off the moon. And, and I felt like, you know, this, the sense that the moon was, was my, my sense of knowing in a way. And that even though it was covered up by these clouds temporarily, because everything's impermanent, I still felt this real strong kind of knowing and, and, and presence by the moon, even though I couldn't see it 
with my eyes. So this comes back to this idea of of trust and and kind of allowing and 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 trusting into life. You mentioned that you were uh, your house was robbed and you lost all your money, for example, um, or or a big chunk of your savings, and you were able to pick up this shrewdy box or harmonium and, and sing into this moment that to me that that really that points to a real trusting a real um sinking into which i'm sure you've you've developed over the time of your practice could you speak to me a little bit about that about the trust and building that that is and that's actually the you know in the yamas the first limb once again this the 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 second yama is satya which is truth and truth is not even necessarily for the outer world. Truth is becoming, for me, more internally trustworthy. That, that I, can, I, I don't second guess and doubt myself constantly. That doesn't mean I don't get reflective and take time. But to relax into uh, some deeper wisdom, shining moon, which is a beautiful analogy, a beautiful vision right there, that... We are, of course, shrouded from that so often by all of the um, external circumstances, situations, uh, the societal pressures, right? And we forget that that is actually always present, always available. Uh, it's become a, a cliche because it is so powerful to describe so many things, especially in our time where our old understanding of, of self is dissolving and, and uh, trans, transforming into a new understanding of self. So, the, and the new understanding of self being rather than a separate individual, being a set of relationships um, of interactions with the world. So from that perspective, um, vibration and the the way that that um, things vibrate in reference to something else um, like vibration itself is a relationship and a vibration induces other vibrations in anything else that it's vibrating with like this, it comes, this, this way of thinking of, of vibration comes naturally to us as we see existence no longer as being this narrow, separate, cramped self. And then, I don't know, like another part of it is like this new age connotation that is quite repellent to a lot of people. The idea that about, about raising your vibration uh, which I think is a very simple way, very simplistic way of understanding ourselves and understanding um, evolution, uh, the evolution of the soul. Because you could ask why is, why would you even want, like why, why are high vibrations better than low vibrations? Like what does that actually mean? Does it mean that that a piccolo is a better instrument than a bassoon. So once you, or does it mean that that uh, a cloud is better than a rock? If you want to speak in terms of the density of vibration, uh, why is that a good thing? And it actually that prejudice that high vibrations are good 
and low vibrations are bad is an artifact of the history of civilization and social hierarchies in which the highest the, the highest status went to the king and the priests and the lowest status went to the peasants who had their hands in the dirt mm. whereas the king was maybe not even allowed to touch the ground because he was so holy yeah that... so this the so yeah so so like to say that high vibrations are desirable is an artifact of a social system that is now really um uh wanting to change you know people i mean just on a really physical level a lot of young people want to go back to the land now and they hold the profession of farmer in high esteem mm. whereas it used to be at the bottom of the social hierarchy yeah, you mentioned this so, this idea of evolution of the soul and and it seems as though that's really what's happening at the moment there's this emerging kind of zeitgeist that's going on um sorry i feel like i interrupted you <laughs> no that's fine i mean yeah like so if you want to look at the soul as not a vibration, but as a symphony of vibrations, as as a incredibly complex song that goes through transitions and goes through movements. And maybe there's a theme like imagine like a like a like a consummate Beethoven symphony or a Mozart symphony. There's a theme that runs through the whole symph symphony. But the symphony itself is always changing, sometimes gradually and building and reaching a, a, a some kind of a climax and then transitioning to something else. And again and again, imagine that that the soul is like this as well. So we can no longer speak of raising your vibration, but it's really what is the next instrument or the next note that wants to join the symphony and what instrument maybe is done with its role or or what what thread of sound is is now complete in this symphony and so we recognize and and what note isn't being played well and <laughs> is out of harmony with the rest yeah this is a way to look at it where you don't set up a hierarchy of some people have higher vibrations or more evolved consciousness and other people have yeah. lower like yeah we're all evolving in in different ways and it's beautiful because that that ties into a lot of your work as well when you speak about not having a specific enemy because you're being really inclusive with every note if with every instrument because it's all part of the of, of the bigger piece of music it's all part of that bigger kind of canvas or that beautiful painting that's constantly being put together yeah yeah and and you could extend it like who am i co-resonating with who am i harmonizing with mm. so you, this this the symphony of the soul includes other people who in order for that symphony to to really play it needs somebody else to add certain of their of their instruments and their harmonies to it. So, you know, I mean, I, I mean this is all very metaphysical, uh, but if you're gonna use vibration to talk about um, uh, spirituality, yeah. then I think this is a much more fruitful way to look at it than a mere hierarchy of low to high vibrations. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with you.
and it's it's fun exploring it. It's fun hearing what different people kind of have to say about it, and it's it's lo- it's lovely just having that image of a of a collective symphony in my mind right now. It's it's a nice um it's a nice image. It's a nice kind of picture to hold. Um, that kind of kind of leads me to thinking or asking about kind of how do we get ourselves a bit more in tune or a bit more synced up or in rhythm with the symphony of everything when we when we know that we're a bit out of whack and you know it's it's i found that in my my own life to be a difficult thing and i mean for me it's it's almost been this this idea of trust that's been that is probably even currently the most difficult thing it's this idea of kind of falling back and allowing allowing yourself to be caught with trust by by everything and you know and there's signs along the way that show you it's it's the right way to go and you know and there's like little breakthroughs here and there but it still seems to be you know a challenge for me anyways yeah i mean it sounds to me like you're asking how to do something that is fundamentally not something that you do. Yeah. Like you're trying to make allowing into like this active verb. Mm. But if you really look at it carefully and contemplate those moments where you did go into trust, and maybe you can recall a, a choice point in which you went into trust, what was actually going on then? And can you actually replicate that by an act of will? Or did it, like, this is a, I, I don't have an answer for you here. Yeah, it's an interesting but, question. But maybe this is not yet another thing that we have to do. Mm-hmm. You know, your next task on your self-improvement journey is to start trusting. Well, where did the distrust come from? How is it um, an appropriate response to circumstances? And is it still needed? Maybe it is. Are, is, are you ready to trust more? And in what way are you ready to trust more? And how are you afraid to trust more? And just to like take an honest inventory. What are you not ready to trust? Like, honestly, even if you would like to, even if you have an idea that it would be good to trust something more, to trust life more, to trust abundance more, whatever it is, um, are you actually ready to do that? And by giving attention to your readiness or lack thereof, a process uh, is set in motion. So it's really the act of attention that is the primary um, application of will. It's not trusting. How, how attentive are we? Or what do you pay attention to? Mm. But yeah. But you could do it right now. You know, you could... Um, give attention to the part of you that is ready to trust. You can give a part attention to the part of you that wants to trust and is not ready. Hmm. And and to go into that. 
and just to sit with that, you know, and you can do that for other people too. Like somebody doesn't trust you and in either directly or indirectly, you can be with them in that distrust. Because when you give attention to something, it changes. A new thing has been added. It, 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 it uh, kicks a, an evolutionary process into motion. Hmm. Where like to give attention to anything that's true in your, in your life. Seeing the truth changes everything. Even if you don't make yourself do something about it. I think you're very, you know, you have a very clear and intuitive idea about this because, you know, um, and, and I would say, I'm going to tell you the indigenous kind of view on this, mm. and then I'll tell you the scientific kind of some of the scientific reasoning behind it. So the indigenous idea is that everything starts with our spiritual health and that spiritual health really depends on being in good relations and being in good relations with yourself, being in good relations with um, those around you, and being in good relations with your place, with your land, you know, and mm -hmm. the earth that you're, that you're living on. And um, so that is considered really like everything else is downstream. So your emotional health and your physical health are downstream of your spiritual health. And um, so that's kind of the whole paradigm in which I operate. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things you can do for your physical health that can change your physical health, your emotional health, or your spiritual health. Because as one example, you know, if you like, this is an example I was just talking about earlier today, like um, choosing to eat a healthier diet or choosing to exercise is actually like, it's an act of self-love. It's an act of changing a story that you might've always told yourself about yourself, right? So there is this kind of spiritual shift that even happens when you change something in your physical well-being. Um, but on the other side of it, when we experience a trauma and that trauma can be a profound trauma or it can be the kinds of traumas that we just all experience, you know, in day-to-day -day life, um, it actually can change your, we hold that in our bodies in various ways, and it can really change your, um, your epigenetics, the not which, okay, so our genes are, you know, our DNA is pretty, fairly constant, and it's passed down, and very little gets disrupted in that, but the way our DNA is read and manifested as us, that varies based on not just what we eat and, you know, our environment and the things we're exposed to and even our ancestry and our lineage. Like if great, great grandma had a, you know, lived through a famine, then that actually is something that can be passed down and, you know, it'll affect our physical and emotional well-being. But um, yeah, so it's reversible though. So it's really interesting. Like the things we experience do change our body and are held in our body and are manifested in various ways. So um, absolutely our spiritual well-being is a really important component and maybe the most important component of our health. Um, but that does not give us the green light to not pay attention to the other stuff too, you know? 
Yeah, that makes total sense. I want to kind of come back to, at some point, um, the elders in Ecuador, but um, just kind of going down this stream a little bit. Um, so what what are some ways to maybe shake up uh, those ingrained kind of traumas in our physical um, body and, and kind of release some of that, um, some of that built up tension, if you want to call it that? Yeah, there's a good number of ways and some of them are very simple accessible things and some mm. of them are a little more exotic but you know um first of all like we have these forces in our bodies and we need to always be moving them and you know there's this idea of life force which in western um you know culture in or whatever we want to call this culture um you know, we don't really have a lot of, we don't have a word for it. And we don't even have a word for spiritual health, really. Um, you know, we, we need a whole kind of lexicon for that. And that's what I'm trying to create, you know, with my institute, the Terrain Institute. But, um, but really, it's like, um, you know, with our, our spiritual, um, our, oh, so our life force and our movement is like called prana, it's called chi, there's a lot of different names for this life force and it needs to be moving and flowing. And if you just think about like, if you have a river or a Creek or a stream and it's blocked off, you know, then like there's a lot of, you know, algae that grows and the, you know, it gets, it gets like the life can die in it because mm. it's not getting oxygen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of like what in it, if when that happens invisibly inside of us, you know, we can feel the same way and that can manifest physically, emotionally, or spiritually. So how do we move these forces? Well, moving our bodies is one way, you know, that can be dancing, that can be running, that can be gardening, grounding on the earth is another thing. I always, I'm like a huge tree hugger. I deeply believe in going and, you know, I mean, asking permission and hugging, hugging trees or lying on the ground, um, but really doing a lot of grounding because nature um, and, you know, has a way of alchemizing and moving a lot of these kinds of energies. And we could get deeply into the science of that if we wanted to, but I'll leave it at that. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of those things. Breath work is another way. So doing very particular kinds of um, pranayama breathings or other breathing techniques that we're very lucky to have, you know, shared with us from, um, you know, Indian culture, um, that we can really move energies in a powerful way. Um, so those are some examples. Also, though, being in experiences of wonder and awe, that is a way actually of moving these energies um, powerfully. And, um, you know, the big thing right now that a lot of people really seem to be partaking in is also things like um, microdosing of psychedelics or going to, you know, um, using what we call master plants, these plants that can have very powerful sort of psychic adjustments, um, like psilocybin or ayahuasca, sacred plants um, that some people have engaged with and found, um, you know, huge movement and huge awakening around that. This is about trust. It's about trust in the medicine, but also trust in ourselves. Because what we often do is we project our own mistrust 
against ourselves onto anything that's available, including these medicines. And uh, drinking plant medicines have, has quickly taught me experientially that there was nothing to fear, that ultimately what I would meet, experience under the effects of these medicines was just an aspect of myself. And at some point, I made the choice, the conscious choice, like I am done living my life in fear of myself. And uh, it's been amazing. You know, when I first went to the jungle in 2004, I drank ayahuasca a couple of times years before. Mm. And uh, by the way, my, my own healing journey from, from, from childhood uh, was, you know, I grew up Catholic. It was heavily colored with shame. And when I went to the jungle, my biggest fear was that people would see me for who I was, with that fear of being rejected, which is one of the core soul wounds that I came here in this planet to heal. Well, you know, one, two, three ayahuasca ceremonies. And I'm like, you know, what you've been hiding from yourself and the world is no big deal at all. You may be, you may have been scared of it, ashamed of it, but really once I saw it, I faced it, I was like, oh, no big deal. But I had to face it to realize that my assumptions were limited or faulty. That sounds like an important realization to, to realize that, you know, you may not be seeing everything that is and, and, and that sometimes our perspectives are, well, probably not only sometimes, our, our perspectives are kind of limited by, you know, they are limited beliefs and assumptions and we might not be able to see the totality of everything and, and understanding that there's still a lot to learn and being open to those lessons, I think. And and you mentioned this in your book, The Rigidity of the Mind. Um, and that seems like one of the most humbling gifts that plant medicines offer us. It's the ability to, uh, to I guess, um, move move out of that rigidity for a moment and, and realize that there's a little bit more than what we may have assumed was the totality of everything. And, and after, yeah. No, I was just going to say it, it allows us to take that breath, that, that single pause. And then I guess afterwards, 
it's like you're looking at life from a totally different point of view. You see that there's much more. We're playing in a much bigger space than than what was kind of previously assumed. Um, yes. When we speak of consciousness expansion, we're not talking about tripping our balls off. Hmm. Consciousness expansion is actually about an expanded viewpoint beyond the limiting and limited beliefs that we hold in our consciousness and basically the lies that we keep telling ourselves. The biggest lie is that we are separate from creation. This is what gives rise to a soul, an energy that is a spark of the divine that has forgotten, that is part of the divine. So the healing journey is about healing that sense of separation and nothing else really that's what the real treasure of this process and of any meaningful spiritual process is all about there seems to be a, a sense of uh, repetition that comes into to, to uh, rituals and yes kind of maybe even you can turn a habit into a ritual in some way Absolutely. if you maybe add some meaning to it or do something with a bit more intentionality. I, I feel as though there, there is a connection between the two, but how does one go about maybe noticing more ways to be able to incorporate uh, ritual in their life? I'm, I mean, you pointed it to it so beautifully just in what you said there. I, I like to think about the way in which we can move from a habit to a ritual as three things, intention, attention, and repetition. Um, and so the, the kind of the big one is, is that first step is, is finding an intention, right? Is finding a, a reason or a symbolic meaning or something additional to the functionality that we want to add to it. Um, the second one is to find a way to pay attention while we practice it. Because sometimes with habits, you know, maybe you're listening to a podcast, maybe you're thinking about the fight you had with your partner, you know, whatever it is that, that, our, that our awareness is actually somewhere very different, especially if it's a habitual task. You know, if you're driving, you're like, wait, I can't remember what happened in the last five minutes <laughs> of my driving. That's a good sign that our brains were elsewhere. And so uh, uh, it, to find a way to pay attention, this is why in traditional religious liturgies, you so often see things like incense or beautiful music or, um, you know, different prayer poses. They're all ways of helping our body be present to, to this moment. Um, so using the five senses as a kind of a design uh, orientation around ritual making is really helpful. Um, so building in things that, that taste delicious or that smell nice or that, 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 that strike us in what we can hear and see and touch and, and feel. Uh, those are all ways of helping us to pay attention. And then, as you said, things that repeat over time, uh, that's a really helpful kind of way of, of turning that habit into, into something that's a ritual. And honestly, the, the way I would think about it is to kind of go, uh, as my friend Kushat says, 
go ritual spotting in your own life. So what, what are the moments already that are kind of latent with opportunity? You know, is there, is there something that you do maybe quietly to yourself? Maybe it's uh, not something you've really even thought about consciously, but a moment where you already feel yourself kind of thinking about big life questions or, or, or a moment where you maybe feel really safe and you, you feel creative in some way. Th those are often the places which are most ready to be turned into a ritual. It's almost as if you want to accentuate certain moments. Um, exactly. And then, and then, yeah, obviously create something around that to make, uh, make it a bit more meaningful in your life and, and, and on, a, on a regular basis. And that sounds like a really powerful thing that seems to be, I don't know, like this sense of beauty to it all, you know, this yeah. sense of, um, you know, creating uh, a beautiful moment out of what might've just been another ordinary one. Um, what, why would we do any of this besides that reason? Like what's, what's the purpose of ritual and why should people consider maybe, you know, incorporating more of it in their lives? Mm. Yeah. Very often we think about ritual as something that's nice to have, um, right. That it's kind of decorative and that it makes life more pleasant and more beautiful. And, yeah. and but it doesn't, it's not really important. I, I feel really strongly that ritual is not just decorative, but it's formative. Um, and by, by that, I mean that the rituals that we practice shape us into the person uh, that, we, that we long to become. Um, if you think about it, uh, you know, uh, what we practice, we become, right? So if, you, if you're practicing piano or if you're practicing taekwondo, uh, or if you're practicing generosity or, or courage or humility, uh, right? Th those, those are things that we cultivate when we practice a ritual. And that's why, it's why the intentionality is so important in a ritual, because we can if we're not careful, practice uh, uh, habits and rituals that we don't intentionally choose and that shape us to become something that we actually don't believe in. Um, there's a wonderful theologian and historian, uh, James K. A. Smith, who talks about, um, you know, using the Christian uh, word of, of liturgy, uh, that even if we're not participating in the liturgy of the church, we're participating in the liturgy of the market. Um, and so we're being trained or sell uh, and that we ourselves consider ourselves as, as part of that kind of uh, uh, world of consumption rather than as, as something, um, you know, inherently worthy and, and good um, as, as a, uh, you know, as a spiritual being as well as an economic one. So I really love that idea of, you know, you've got to be careful about the rituals you choose because they'll shape you. Uh, and if we're not careful, we'll end up in places we don't want to be. There seems to be a lot of these kind of automatic processes that go on um, within our beings and and um, a lot of them seem to trace back to you know even when we might have been in the womb or when we were being born certain you know experiences can link back to that and that can form um, parts of who we are and 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 parts of these kind of automatic rhythms of things and also, like you mentioned, the influences from society, our parents and their own kind of traumatic experience kind of feel, seem to be able to seem to filter through our, um, our experiences kind of put together, you know, part of who we are. And there seems to be this other area, which I find pretty intriguing in Jung's work of, of the collective unconscious. And that is probably links back to what you're talking about with mythology. And even some of like Robert Campbell's work with on the hero's journey, this kind of idea of 
um, you know, different different stories or different characters or archetypes that play out um, throughout our beings, and 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 you know, we we notice them sometimes in dreams through symbology, and um, it just seems like there's a lot going on within us, mm-hmm. and it can be quite quite daunting the idea of trying to kind of um, work through some of that so that we can, um, you know, be more consciously feeling into our existence. And this idea of feeling in is, is fairly interesting and it's caught my attention recently. It's, it's really, it's, there seems that, that there needs to be a change that takes place, that, that's taking place. And I know that change is always happening in, in, in many different ways and, and never really stops, but seems to be some kind of a moving into um, the next part um, that needs to, that will need to take place at some point. And the facilitation or acceleration of that, the idea of that excites me. Um, and, and, and helping people, I guess, move into this felt sense. It's almost like in uh, Chinese, um, you know, ancient Chinese kind of wisdom mystics would say the heart is for um, decision-making, the gut is for transformation, but we've almost been leading with the mind a lot, which is something <laughs> I think you were pointing to. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 what I've noticed is getting back to that sense of feeling. Uh, I've, I tried to explore ways to allow people to pause and, and get come back to that natural state of stillness that we all have so that we can kind of just, I know mindfulness is kind of a loaded term these days, but come back into kind of ourselves and mm-hmm. almost tap into that innate intelligence that I feel like a lot of that draws from this collective unconscious, which we're obviously not aware of. Could you speak a little bit about that and and this idea of kind of um, the collective unconscious and, and maybe shed some light on, on, on what that's about and how that might link up to what, what we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, you've, you've asked several questions in your recent remarks, so it's hard to know which one to pick up, but I'll start with the last one. What you meant by the collective unconscious is not something occult or mystical. It's simply talking about we share as the human animal a common symbolic system. A, a, you know, where does meaning come from? Meaning is not inherent in nature. Meaning is not inherent in matter, but we are the meaning-seeking creatures, as, as I mentioned. So it's how does our psyche structure reality and stand in relationship to it? Why do we create rituals? Why do we create societies? Why do we create religions, et cetera, et cetera? Value systems of all kinds. These are, these are psychological expressions and psychological needs at some level. And so the collective unconscious simply refers to the fact that you and I talking here in the so-called 21st century uh, can have a dream tonight that's identical to a dream someone had thousands of years ago. We have plenty of evidence of that. And, and you'd say, well, what's the connection between us? It's, it's not an overt connection, but it's, it's, again, sharing a common symbol formation system that we have. Um, you only talked about three layers of, of our being. The conscious layer, which is the one we're engaging at the moment, is actually prized by consciousness as who we are, but it's only a small wafer floating on a large sea. 
There's a second layer that's really the personal unconscious, which includes everything that's ever happened to you. And that's where Freud sort of stopped off there and thought what we carry was simply what has happened to us, plus our instinctual systems uh, in the course of our personal biographies. And in that um, personal unconscious are the various clusters of energy that Jung called the complex. Now a complex is a neutral word. It can be, it simply means a cluster of energy, a, a structure like an airport complex or an apartment complex. But we all have complexes around certain emotionally charged experiences in life. And so whenever they're triggered, they have the power to come up and usurp that fragile consciousness, take over and act out a script from long ago and far away. That's why we have patterns in our lives. We don't often, again, rise in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to do the same stupid things I've done in the past you know, decades. Seems easy to miss that that's going on, though, while it's happening. It is. Of course it is, because it's happening unconsciously. We're not aware of it. People have often said, well, how do I begin this sort of analysis of my psychological life and my, my formative patterns and the engines that are pushing me? And I would say, well, start with your patterns. Start with the patterns that you think are counterproductive to your best interests or maybe are hurtful to someone else. And realize that what we do is always logical if we can work back to it's a premise. And the premise will be what got charged in our emotional history. Mm. And, and, and it's logical based on that premise, but it could have been the perspective of the child. So as children, we're constantly trying to sort of sort out, is the other person safe or unsafe? Can I approach them? Do I need to keep my distance? Do I have to avoid them? Do I have to mollify them? Do, what, do I, what are my, my sort of instructions? Um, and, and we also, in some deeper layer, you know, carry the information of our culture. What did I see my parents do? What, how did I interpret their values and behaviors? And what was I exposed to in my cultural formation? And then, of course, the collective unconscious, as I mentioned, is the sort of heritage we all share. That's why when Joseph Campbell talked about the hero with a thousand faces, he said, the idea of the hero is a universal idea. That's what an archetype is. It's a universal structuring idea. And I want to put the emphasis upon the idea of the archetype as a verb, not a noun. It's not a received content. It's a, it's a formative energy. So, for example, the archetype of the hero is within all of us. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. I mean, terror and economic hardship can do that too. But the hero is the so-called so energy that is tasked with taking on the struggles of life operating in the face of our fears, overcoming our inherent lethargy and desire to avoid the struggles of life and all of those things. Those are the enemies of life, fear and lethargy ultimately. And what in us brings us to the table and takes them on on a daily basis? Well, that's what has been called the, the hero archetype. And the archetype of the hero is often seen in stories as some virtually supernatural figure or some, some special figure, but the purpose of those stories was to activate that kind of energy inside of each, each person to, in, if you will, inspire them or breathe within that kind of, of energy to, to sort of bring us to the struggle of life. You know, your life is a journey. It's a struggle. There are many obstacles. Some of them are outside of you and some of them are inside of you. 
And the purpose of your life will be found in the degree to which you can figure out essentially who you're supposed to be coming from more inside instructions than external and live it to the best of your ability. None of us will get it all right. None of us will be perfect. Um, we will all falter and fail and, and, and injure ourselves along the way and be injured by others. That's, you know, welcome to the circus of life. But, but your, your calling here is to bring who you are into this world. Another way of putting this, in the first half of life, speaking very broadly, um, your task is, what is the world asking of me? Can I mobilize enough energy to leave mother and father, go out into the world, create relationship, create career, become a productive citizen, you know, become a person in the world. But in the second half of life, the question shifts a little bit and perhaps could be better seen as, um, what does the soul ask of me? Which is a different question. That's why if I have followed all of my instructions and faithfully, and, and, and yet, let's say at midlife experienced a depression, which is what sent me in my 30s to my first hour of analysis many years ago, not because I wanted to, because suddenly the roadmap was no longer working. Um, then you begin to ask a different kind of question. And that is, what is the soul wanting of me in this world? And that's a different question. And if you're privileged to live long enough, these kinds of issues, crises, these kinds of um, sort of transitional periods or passages um, will come up repeated, uh, repeatedly in your life. Sometimes they're large passages. Uh, sometimes they're, they're actually small ones or even on a daily basis. But something in us is always dying and something is always wanting to emerge. And the more consciously I can attend to that, the, the sort of more I'm cooperating with life rather than running from it or, or, or resisting it. When I first returned from my training in Zurich back in the uh, 70s and started working with people, I, I realized that everybody came in with a different presenting story and a, a different history. But what everybody had in common was that their understanding of self and world, their roadmap, so to speak, had played out. And, um, you know, if you use an old map for the new terrain, you're not going to get very far. And it just occurred to me, that's what a passage is. Something has played out. The new possibility, the, the new understanding, the new strategy is not yet here. It's not available. It's still in the unconscious, just over the horizon. And we have to sort of tolerate the difficult in between. And, and holding those pieces together is often one of the functions of therapy. This often occurs at midlife, although it can happen at any point when people's children leave, when they're downsized, when they lose a partner, when, when they're facing aging or illness or mortality. There are a thousand precipitants for these sort of challenges to our maps. But the question then is, all right, <laughs> Can I be willing to let go of the old instruction and risk stepping into a, a different journey? Mm -hmm. And when one is able to bring that kind of openness to the issue, life gets very interesting. And people's story begins to deepen and um, they begin to find that they're on the road to connecting to, um, you know, may, maybe their real journey rather than the one that they receive from their culture.
Yeah, what an interesting, what an interesting uh, life you've led to be able to um, go through this process yourself and to be able to connect with so many stories and kind of see this process unfold within different individuals. I think that's that that sounds quite amazing to me, and it sounds like it sounds there's there's a beauty to that. That I, that I really respect, but I, I realize as well that it must be quite difficult because it seems as though um, with Jungian work, there's a lot of kind of digging and a lot of kind of uncovering kind of those those deeper kind of layers that have been, I guess, calcified over, the, over time. Um, would you be able to talk to me a little bit about this idea of shadow work and this idea uh-huh. of um, finding these... Uh, you'd probably be able to put it better than I could, but these kind of deeper layers um, that we may not be aware of and and bringing them to light so that we can integrate them into our being. Mm, I forget the exact language. It's an it's a, either an Indian or some Eastern language. The term is sati. It's to kind of remember, wake up to and remember the being mode, which is also where I take probably most of my influence for and using that kind of term as a sense of coming back into touch with what really matters or at least coming back into touch with a certain necessary aspect of what really matters yeah but you know i'm i'm curious michael we've begun this conversation by jumping right in, not that it felt like much of a jump. Let's say we slipped right into a, a stream of expression here around this um, hmm, this subtlety of perception. And I'm curious as to how these themes relate to what you're doing more broadly and what your project is aimed at and how you find yourself showing up in the world. Well, I guess it it has to do with my own struggle, my own struggle with some of these themes and, and, I guess recognizing a struggle within others as well. And on some level, I feel like we all kind of face a lot of these themes in our own different ways. In terms of me showing up, I feel as though there's this kind of connectedness. Again, it's another kind of overused term, but one that I I can't really find a better way to explain or describe, and that is that that inner sense of knowing. Connecting to that in some form, and then, and then, I guess, wrestling with my own hesitation to, to move in that direction um, has been something that I've been doing for a long time and, and maybe not so aware of for a lot of my life. Tell me about that direction. What have you seen? For me, I feel like 
the picture isn't isn't super clear, and I believe that that's kind of part of it. I think if there was a certainty to this story, then it wouldn't it wouldn't be this. It, it just just wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the best way I, c- I can put it. But I, f- I feel like what I've seen is, is I guess an opportunity for a different world and a connectedness between my own actions and Again, a lot of people might find this a little bit strange to kind of take in and, and might not be able to connect with it, but it's kind of my truth. And that is that there's there's some kind of a connection between what I'm going through and how I choose to show up in the world and to what's going on in the bigger picture of things and what's and, mm. and what's happening with everyone. And there's this there's mm. this link there that kind of over and over again seems to be seems to be present and i feel as though part of part of this picture because it's definitely not the whole thing is a a need for or a calling for movements with with meaning behind them moving in the direction of of something that's meaningful and i and i feel like there's a lot of noise out there at the moment and it's easy to be distracted by the noise caught up in it and and follow follow the noise for a while but there are also ways to i guess step away from that for a moment and come back to that sense of remembrance, connect back to that sense of inner knowing, and then choose to move in 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 that direction. And this is just something that's mm-hmm. kind of you're asking me about the the picture, the the kind of what what that knowing is telling me. But th- it's it's weird because what I'm explaining is actually describing that feeling. But at the same time, it's it's what has come from that feeling, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I like a lot that you're describing a process. Um, in my way of expressing some of this kind of stuff, so the Jungian notion of the self sits in the groundless ground of the psyche. It is not the ego. It is not merely the subconscious and neither is it the kind of Freudian id of unconscious impulses. It's instead something like hmm, something like a blueprint of potentiality 
Now, maybe a blueprint is just potentiality, but there's a certain fixedness to many blueprints. It's not so much a blueprint like something that's been written down and has already been made, but it is something to be realized. And it's also something that realizes itself. It's again, a bi-directional movement. There's a sense in which the self propels us from an ember. There's an ember in the heart. And the self is also met and heard like the calling of an echo. So there's an ember and an echo. And so the movement itself is meaningful there's meaning in the directionality the directionality is itself aspirational so it's again not something that's appropriate to put a box around and just fix as you've begun to articulate we can think about take a step back and consider um life itself maybe the process of cosmic evolution itself the cosmos at large hey well we can think of the natural world as we encounter it that 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 shit is complex you know that ecology is comprised of relationships upon relationships upon relationships interdependencies upon interdependencies and to box up any one part of it necessarily cuts away from the interdependencies of the whole now that doesn't mean we can't helpfully cut things up and understand particular functions within a box we have to be wary when we do it and so it's kind of something like this when i consider vision we are you know we are walking through dark gardens often and we begin to feel out what's there um, and maybe there are some people in that garden or along the path we can say we can see some sort of light in the distance we're not quite sure what that light indicates, but it's a direction of orientation. And as we take a step bravely, then we're in a new position and we begin to see a little bit more of what's around us. And maybe we can begin to see some other lights that have been lifted and are themselves orienting in a particular direction. Maybe we can begin to see what kind of patterns emerge in those lights. We can become to be in relationship with those lights. And well, of course, things are changing all along the way. And there's something beautiful and unending about the grandness of that process. But you know, it's a deep thing to consider the degree to which things truly are open. It does seem to me to be the case that they are. It's a foundational axiom of this whole way of thinking that potentiality itself is a 
domain is a feature rather of ontology of what there is itself that the potential is as real as the actual yeah so the the uh you know in the middle ages you had you know this this major resurgence of greek ideas greek logic uh you know the greek language was really rediscovered by western europeans uh around the time of the collapse of the ottoman empire in the 1400s and uh, then when the, the Catholic Church took over Spain from the, from the Moors and, and they translated all of those uh, books from Arabic into English, or rather into Latin and uh, French, you know, they, there was uh, this tremendous resurgence of scholasticism, of scholarly work. Of course, we call this the Renaissance, right? It was the rebirth of Greek reason. And in some sense, Western man became addicted to that because we saw its potential, we saw its power. And, uh, you know, it was, it was totally justified because, I mean, you know, I'm speaking to you right now instantly and you're on the other side of the world. <laughs> this is the power of technology. Uh, you know, so it's, it's certainly valuable. Uh, but I think now that what has happened is at the far end of this, now that we're in the 21st century, uh, there's been a recognition that with all this knowledge, there are still some very fundamental questions about ourselves that we have no idea about. Like for instance, what is consciousness? Uh, what happens when people die? What are dreams made out of? You know, these seem like very rudimentary childlike questions. You know, why is the sky blue? And yet we have no idea. And science has largely ignored these things uh, and it's been content to essentially bypass them or to offer very uh, very unsatisfactory, superficial answers. I've seen this quite a lot in science where uh, serious academics will take some of these deeply profound mysteries and for fear of acquiring a bad reputation, they will, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They'll, they'll sort of minimalize it or, you know, make it sound very dull and, and, tr and, and try to avoid anything that sounds mysterious for fear that they might be associated with woo uh, mysticism or, you know, the, the goofiness of spirituality, right? So there's, I think, a big cultural interest in these things today because we're aware of this now. We're looking around and we're saying, hey, there's something here and it's worth looking into, you know. The mind is not just the brain, you know. I think we're becoming more and more aware of that. Yeah, it is quite interesting how just just the thought what comes to me right now is just this idea of, um you know this change it seems to be a shift within science as well and you can see people kind of stepping out you know in spite of those um common kind of uh perceptions of of this kind of stuff being really woo you know they're stepping out and taking a chance and exploring some of these areas and, and that's really kind of exciting stuff there's also a part of me that feels like you know i i had a realization a few years ago and it was this this idea of like not needing to know everything like I, I all my life i've really wanted so many answers for so many things and i, I guess that's really made me suffer and, and has had has been a bit of a weight on my shoulders and this idea of kind of letting go of that and just accepting what is and just being in awe of everything you know brings me you know a sense of peace it, it's like you know why do we need anything more special you know people ask for interesting stories all the time but I mean, there's so much beauty all, all around us and, and just to be able to, you know, um, realize that beauty and to accept it without 
having to know the reason behind it all, um, I think I feel like that could be quite liberating as well. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people uh, have have felt that way. I know it's been a, a kind of a a more recent realization for myself as well, where you know the the scientific process and the inquisitive Western mind, uh, you know, is is very, you know, as, as much as it's inspired by curiosity, it's also incredibly harmful. You know, I, I'm reminded here. Uh, I, I just showed the uh, the kids here the other day uh, the, the old Jurassic Park movie from mm. the 90s, you know, and there's one scene in there where he says, I, I can't remember the exact words, but he says, you know, what you call scientific inquiry is what I call the rape of the natural world. And uh, it's very true, you know, like I, I think about the fact, you know, I've been studying ancient Egypt quite a lot here lately. And, you know, we, we, we discover a tomb and we can't not open it. You know, we must open it. <laughs> we have to tear it apart, take everything out, you know, clear away all the dust, take pictures of everything, dismember, disassemble. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's in some sense very violent, you know, the, the things that we do to, to understand and to try to comprehend the, the world around us. And that, that's a thing that's often overlooked, you know, that the people... They, they think as long as it's inspired by curiosity, it's okay, but that's a very Western notion. And uh, it's very iconoclastic in the sense that there's nothing sacred to us. You know, we have no problem, you know, disassembling and tearing things apart just to understand them a little better, mm. you know, and it's, it's the, it's the example of dissecting a toad. I mean, you want to know how it works, but in the process you kill that frog. And oftentimes we don't think about that. We're too busy trying to know you know and the person will come with their hopes aspirations of what they want to create and you know the sessions are all around supporting that connection and then what i love to do is to build a bridge between um these kind of very yogic sonic practices and real life because it's one thing isn't it to be doing all of our sacred practices in our you know meditation spaces meditation centers retreat spaces yoga centers but the really interesting moment is when we feel it pouring into our daily life so that where we're coming from you know we're chanting our lives we're singing our lives you know um there's a beautiful book by hazrat anayat khan which is like my Bible, really, it's called the music of life. And, um, you know, he talks about all of us being the instruments of one great orchestra. And that if there's one instrument that is not playing its true note, then the world is a little less well off. So in other words, it's our, it's our joy to be the instrument that we were designed to be. So, you know, if we were born to be a piccolo, for example, which is a very unique instrument and quite high pitched, and we find ourselves in a trombone section, we're going to have the experience that we're being blasted out, we're not being heard, and we're suddenly very disillusioned. Is there something wrong with us? No. We just ended up in the wrong section for us. 
but I'll also back up that nothing's wrong because everything's a learning curve. So, you know, the metaphor in life is that, you know, in my early life, I was in all sorts of wrong, but they weren't really wrong. They were just places where I learned what wasn't right for Nikki, mm. you know, mm. you know, where I was in some quite heavy scenes, you know, um, but they were they were perfect because they were blasting me out really like the trombones. No offense against trombones. Trombones are perfect <laughs> if you don't have the trombones coming in in that perfect moment. But there's a, I think what I love about that book is it there's a place for everyone. It's like nothing's ever really wrong. It's just that we need to understand the music that is in us, the the music of our own life which section am I in? And by the way, that section can change. It's like, you know, you might have been a trumpeter, for example, who's played classical for many, many years, and then suddenly you want to be like Louis Armstrong, you know, in a jazz band. But when that moment comes, it's probably advisable to let go of playing first trumpet in the classical orchestra because it's you're going to be frustrated and something that used to be fun is suddenly discordant. That happened to me as an actress. I just didn't mean anything to me anymore. Was there something wrong with being an actor? Of course not. You know, but it's, it's a wonderful form of expression and it gives so much joy. However, for me, I was having the experience of being a classical trumpeter that needed to break out and move into the yoga of sound. You know, that, that was my, that was the section of the orchestra that I needed to be in. And, um, and that is a function of vibration coming back to your original inquiry. You know, um, we, we all feel a certain resonance, don't we? And, and I love it when, you know, that, that amazing moment where you're resonating with certain people, like there's a real sense of this person's in my music section and I'm in theirs and we're meant to be playing. Yeah, you know, um, sometimes we can fetishize retreats and think that, you know, that's where we're going to figure things out. And what I found uh, in my life and what I've seen with uh, you know, friends and people around me and also my teachers is that retreat really complements our daily practice and our daily life. So um, it helps give us time to reflect, to deepen, but then we really have to do the work of bringing that back into our life. And for me, a lot of the transformation then happens in my life, not necessarily on retreat. Um, but uh, having said that, I would encourage for those who can make time and it's harder depending on our life, our work schedules, obviously right now retreat centers are mostly closed. So no one's doing retreat in that way. Um, it can also, if we live in urban environments, really give us access to, to nature in a way that, uh, you know, for me, I, I just didn't have um, the opportunity uh, without retreat time to really be in nature in that way that, um, gives us that deeper connection because we are able to commune. You know, we're not on a trip with family or moving from one place to another. We're really able to, to feel the power and majesty and, and interconnection with nature. So it, it's really important that way too, for those of us who don't have access, um, even though everything is nature, including us. Um, but wild nature is something different. 
Um, and then, you know, it's also can be a slippery slope because I've found and what I see in a lot of people, um, I used to run a Dharma center in New York City, New York Insight Meditation Center. And we used to, uh, the co-director and I, we would um, sometimes refer to ourselves as like the black widows because we would just kill people's like connection to their careers or to sort of normal life mm. that once you start practicing and once you start doing retreats it's hard to stop you know there's kind of that dharma bum dharma dropout phenomenon and you realize the power of deepening practice and um, you start to kind of orient your life around that rather than the other way around um, so you know be careful what you wish for and and what you create because it can cascade too uh and i i think that it's um it's amazing even if you do a day-long retreat and we can create that for ourselves right we can do that at home we can just decide to unplug the wi-fi and turn off the phone and practice all day um we can do that in an urban setting. There are a lot of urban centers now that do kind of um, um, retreats that are non-residential, you know, sort of have practices all day. You go home and sleep and then you come back the next day and do them. And you, there are weekend retreats, so you can start small. And there's a real power in longer retreats. So to do 10 days, two weeks, or even more um, really provides the opportunity to deepen in a way that I think uh, is just not not possible, has not been possible um, unless you were a monastic or had a, a particular life path. And the fact that more and more people have access to that, I think is, is one of the ways that, you know, we'll create portals for more and more people, for more and more change. Would you seem like you just lightened up after that last sentence. Could you do you have a specific experience that you can kind of, that comes to mind when you talk about, you know, the deepening um power of a of a longer retreat? Oh wow. You know, it's funny that I lightened up because a lot of my long retreats have been really hard. You know, they're not pleasant experiences, but pleasant doesn't have to mean suffering, right? Unpleasant doesn't have to mean suffering. Pleasant doesn't have to mean suffering either. But <laughs> There's a way in which, you know, we, um, we learn how to have ease by going through difficulty that I think um, retreat gives us the opportunity to really plug into because there's nothing to distract yourself with. And if I'm having a hard time, I can call a friend, I can, you know, complain about someone or complain about something or distract myself with something pleasant or, um, you know, there's so many ways for us to get away from what's unprocessed or feels undigestible, but on retreat, of course you could, you know, hide in your room the whole time and do nothing. But if you've gone there and made that commitment and paid all that money and gone all the way, um, most of the time, uh, you'll have the support around you also to to really stay with it. And we learn by staying with it how much transformation can come from that. And, and you know, I want to say that's as true. So a lot of retreats are silent and they're individual, but I think that's true of um, the practice of being in community in general. 
it's one of the most kind of famous phenomena on retreat is that everybody drives you crazy, even though no one's talking to each other and you're not interacting. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, there's, there are two phenomena that people talk about, the Vipassana romance. So, you know, falling in love with complete strangers and then at the end of the retreat, you meet them and you realize that they're your worst nightmare. That's interesting. Um, so you just sort of project <laughs> onto these people. And then the other is the Vipassana vendetta. You know, someone who's just way of being annoys you. Um, and the more and more retreats you do, the more you realize that it's you, right? It's all, it's all about you and your own projections. You start to see that. You start to be able to, to laugh at them too. Sounds like there's a pretty um, there's some pretty interesting links between uh, going on a retreat and life. <laughs> yes, it, it really is. It, it shows you, except you don't have all of the distractions or um, all of the the projections and counter projections to help you ignore life. You know, to help mm. you ignore your own mind, your own tendencies. You know, it's all right there for you to see. But from the perspective of the lessons that you, you draw from that experience, it's kind of almost as if it's because you don't have those distractions, some kind of an acceleration is taking place or a facilitation of sorts. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's mm. a great way to put it. Mm. Yeah, I don't really have much experience with retreats, to be honest. I've been running my own little ones um, where I go into the forest for a couple of days and just stay at a house and, and do my own thing. And um, And how are they? They're amazing. I mean, I found a period before them and after them to be uh, very important. So the preparation leading up to the retreat usually kicks kicks me into gear. And um, I've been trying to... What I've been doing is I've been trying to kind of uh, take note of my natural environment, where I am at the moment, and the changing of not only the seasons, but and just going to the seasons for a moment in, in the Aboriginal kind of calendar, or th there's a... This, there's many more seasons than just the four traditional ones. Um, you know, you've got you've got when certain flowers start coming out. You've got when the last leaf falls, and and this mm. kind of an idea. So I'm trying to kind of match up uh, at the moment my retreats with uh, or my what I'm calling retreats with kind of what's going on in my environment, and then kind of finding a way to pay homage to kind of that what's going on there and linking that to my own experience and. I found the preparation for these to be really powerful because I know it's coming up. So I'm really trying to, you know, do the best I can and, 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 you know, give it the respect that it deserves. Um, because then not only because of the fear of getting my ass kicked when I'm on the retreat, but also <laughs> because I feel as though that's, like I said, that's what it deserves. And then, uh, the retreat itself is, uh, like you said, it, it's this kind of beautiful challenging uh mix of of um elements and then afterwards there seems to be a real uh opportunity um to integrate the experience and um an opportunity that can be squandered and can be wasted and can be mm. kind of allowed to pass without really um making the most out of it and um, but also one that's uh you know, available to really kind of step into and, and use that as a part, uh, a way to strengthen my practice, like you mentioned earlier. So, yeah, uh, but I haven't actually been to like any, any Vipassana or anything like that, but I'm, I'm interested. I'm interested in kind of exploring that and seeing what that world is like. And it's interesting, these correlations you mentioned about, about people and the way they feel with one another without even speaking to, to each other. And, and sometimes 
you know, in life that, that comes up. I know personally that's come up for me a lot of times and, and it's just about kind of recognizing that it is me, you know, and, and it is kind of a projection. Um, yeah, so. yeah. And Zen, they have a saying that we're like rough stones rubbing up against each other and that's how we become polished mm. and smooth. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed this special little remix of the Today Dreamer podcast. There's going to be fresh episodes out. I'm going to attempt to throw them out weekly in 2021, uh, but they'll definitely be available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And if you've got any ideas for guests uh, or if you would like to just get in touch, please reach out. Uh, my email address is michael at todaydreamer.com. And if you'd like, check out my Instagram, which is today.dreamer, where I'm also available uh, to connect and um, to link up if you'd like to send me a message through there as well. Hope your new year gets off to a meaningful start. And, um, you know, I truly believe with my heart that everything is going to be okay and that everything already is okay. And, um, you know, I'm with you in spirit, wherever you are, whoever you are um, listening to this. You know, you've got my gratitude, appreciation and my presence. Be well.